We are resuming in 1 Samuel, the new material today. Once we get there after a brief recap, we'll begin in chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. In an homage to Charles Dickens in A Christmas Carol, which I don't know how many of you would get this reference, this allusion, but the Christmas Carol book begins by saying, and Marley was dead to begin with. I say this is an homage to that because I would start by saying Israel was wayward to begin with. And so in this long line of disciplinary action that we've been spending some time with over the last few weeks, the fact of the matter is is that God's people simply grew accustomed to living in a gradual, spiritually sloppy manner, allowing anything and everything to take importance over the Lord. And we need to really take consideration of that because, in my opinion, this is the scourge of the believing church today. Not doing anything, perhaps, overtly horrendous or heinous or obvious, but simply growing spiritually sloppy. The leadership of God's people, both civic and spiritual, under the high priest Eli and his two degenerate priestly sons, as you know if you've been with us for the last few weeks, contributed greatly to the decline as a peaceful and prosperous culture. And this was their demise as a worship community, no longer in favorable standing with their king and their lord. What I want to highlight, again, this is all recap is that there is no aspect of our lives, not a single one, that is not negatively affected by our disobedience. That's the downside. But the upside of that is that there is no aspect of our lives that is not positively affected by our obedience, by our faithfulness. Which means however we assess the status or condition of our lives or our households or our church and moving out to our community and our state and our nation and the world, our spiritual condition in relation to God is at the center of it all. After Israel's first spanking, where they were decimated to the tune of 4,000 men in the battle against the Philistines, they obtained the Ark of the Covenant, receiving it with shouts of joy and acclamation, such that the Philistines heard it far off in their own camp. They heard the uproar. And I find that the Philistines' response is quite interesting and unexpected. This goes all the way back to chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. The Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us! Who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Now my assessment of that could be wrong. But I have to think that the pagan Philistines, in a sense, had a more accurate and vibrant theology of the Jewish God than the Jews did at this moment in time. What I mean by that is that when Israel was disciplined for their waywardness, they determined they needed something new. They needed a new dynamic, a new strategy. But when the Philistines hear the shouts of celebration from God's people, the Philistines go basically into a panic attack. 
Why? Because they understand that this is, that the ark coming into the people of God's presence is not just a symbolic representation of God's presence in their camp, but this in fact was Yahweh, the God of Israel who had entered their camp. And the theological interpretation and application of the event by the Philistines seems better than that of God's own people. The theological interpretation is that this is a God of power and might. And there is none like him anywhere in the universe. And people need to be bowing in homage to them. But they didn't see it that way. Nope, they just needed the ark. Their interpretation, that is the Philistines, is that this isn't just another God. And understand, this is a people who are coming from a standpoint of, of, a, uh, of polytheism, of having many gods. No, this is the standout God. This is the stand-up God. The God who has a proven track record so vividly demonstrated against the Egyptians when God wanted his people to leave. And by the way, this is precisely... We're told in the scriptures why God kept hardening Pharaoh's heart. That's what Paul tells us in the letter to Rome in chapter 9. And so you could say it was a PR campaign put on by God that worked. So after then Israel's second spanking, the subsequent battle that followed the first, which was even more severe than the first, the Philistines themselves capture the ark and they take it back with them as one of the spoils of war. The ark leaving God's people by the hands of pagans was a blow to their sense of national pride. Like a college football team, perhaps, having lost their mascot stolen. But of course, it was so much more than that. It was a harsh message to Israel that God's displeasure with them was at such a height that he was no longer reachable until and unless they returned to honoring and obeying and serving the Lord as their God and their king. And so what does God do? God uses the wretched nations to discipline his people. And that, by the way, is a common MO in the OT. It's a common modus operandi, method of operation in the Old Testament. We see it played over and over again in many different books. So the Philistines now have the prized ark, and Phineas's wife, Phineas was one of the wayward priests who's already dead because of his disobedience and waywardness. She understands the significance of what has taken place. God's presence and God's favor are no longer givens to the people of God. Jehovah had been taken for granted. Another way of saying this is in a New Testament context is that God's grace became a presumption. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, however, understand we're talking Old Testament economy and all that that means about the sacrificial system in Judaism, all the way through the New Testament, saving faith, genuine, bona fide, real saving faith has always ever been proven, validated through godly living, not through pious platitudes. A platitude is a statement that is generally accepted, often, often of moral value, 
everyone kind of recognizes it and they get it and it sounds real good, but they ignore it. And we don't want to confuse a platitude with a platypus. Sorry, whenever I get a little heady, I've got to throw something in there to wake you up a bit. Real faithfulness, saving faith, is always validated through godly living. New material, 1 Samuel 5, beginning in verse 1. Now the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it up by Dagon. So the Philistines vanquish God's people because God's favorable hand is against his own people. The way this plays out should give us pause considering that God uses, as I've already mentioned, he uses despicable, wretched, even idolatrous unbelievers, even showing them favor, at least for a season, in bringing about the purposes of God. In this case, God is going to use the Philistines to knock some sense into the people who are called by his name. But God's using the Philistines doesn't mean they get off without their own consequences. This is Dagon. This is an image of what the Philistines' god Dagon looked like. The pagan Philistines take Israel's hallowed ark. They place it in the temple of their chief god. This was their, their god of all their gods in their pantheon, Dagon. And he was, was part fish. He's portrayed as part fish and part man because they believe his origins came about in, in emerging out of the Erythrean Sea, which today is, would be the Indian Ocean. And all that is to say, you think about it all, is that there's something fishy here going down on a large scale that we won't be able to wiggle through having taken the bait, being hooked on their own idolatry. I know. (laughs) Thereby decreasing Dagon's net worth. Okay, I'm done. Now, sorry. I am not a prophecy quack what i mean by that i am not an individual who makes sweeping dogmatic conclusions with every wrinkle every hiccup and every burp that comes out of the middle east but a clear lesson from scriptures that god will use and in fact even facilitates the success of the wicked to bring judgment on his own wayward subjects you can look at judges you can look at first kings you can look at jeremiah you can look at isaiah now as i said i'm not willing to make these some of these bizarre sweeping conclusions about global current events but the fact is that the most ardent, the long-standing enemy of God's people, Israel dating back to Abraham's son Ishmael, the father of Islam. And that is not a statement of bigotry, that is a matter of historical record. So, we don't want to be ignorant of what is History. So with my previous statements about God using evil people to discipline those whom he loves, I started thinking just very briefly about 9 September 11th. If the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and it is because the scripture says so, 
thinking about how far away our nation has come from its Christian roots, is it so far-fetched that Islamic terrorists attacking the very hub of American and arguably global finance were merely coincidental? And when the final devastation in New York City was completed, a devastation, if you remember later on, was even a surprise to the masterminds of the evil. For all the utterly strange and wild conspiracy theories used to explain the collapse of the Twin Towers, what I am saying is that we have centuries of precedent showing us the way God can choose to work, chastising those who once had a heritage grounded in the values and in the precepts and in the morals of God himself. Meaning, it is all consistent with his long-standing way of the way he has always worked in the world throughout the entire historical timeline. The Philistines place the Ark of God in their temple of Dagon after God has given the Philistines victory over his people twice. And as sovereign of the universe, God does what God wants to do to bring about his purposes in the world, which is something from which we morals in our hubris recoil. Oh, we can talk about a sovereign almighty God. But when the things of the earth start colliding against our perceptions of the way life ought to be, suddenly the idea of a sovereign God doing what he wants to do, what he needs to do to bring about kingdom purposes, that no longer sails. And we hear it, oh, I I could never worship a God like that, or God who would permit that, or, well, if God can do anything, why doesn't he? We've heard it all the time. Sometimes we even think it ourselves, to be honest. God can do whatever he chooses. Whatever he chooses within the self-imposed confines of his character which are always good, they are always just, they are always righteous, and they are always loving, whether we see them that way or not. The victory of the Philistines over God's people was because God brought it about. So stage one of God's mission is accomplished. Now it's time for stage two. Verses 2 and 3, Then the Philistines took the ark of God and they brought it to the house of Dagon and set it up by Dagon. When the Ashdodites rose early in the next, early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And so they took Dagon and they set him in his place again. Now what is intentional in this narrative is the detail about the idol of Dagon falling before the ark with its face to the ground, which is the well-established, well-known, understood position of humble worship. (laughs) This is actually kind of funny. If this was a video game, I don't know why my head went there. I was thinking, okay, we call battling idols. I don't know. And your idol gets knocked down. One strategy is you can set the idol up again and then realize, well, okay, maybe it fell down because there was an, earth, there was an earthquake, there was a, a tremor. 
And so, assuming you've amassed enough points in your battling idols game, you could buy earthquake insurance, which you do. But when they arose early the next morning, behold, again, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. Now, if you're playing battling idols, it means you just used your earthquake points, but it wasn't an earthquake that was the problem. This was not coincidence. There was, this was not that they set the idol up poorly. And now this time there's a difference in the added details. Oh, the idol fell down, just like before, prostrate before the Ark of the Covenant. Verse 4, And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were broken off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. So what do we make of this? One thing that really takes us Westerners aback is when we hear of or when we see jihadists not merely killing their victims, but removing their heads as well. We used to hear about this and see this much more a few years ago. And much, much less since a change of administration. But what looks barbaric to us has an ancient history in the Middle East. The decapitation of an enemy's head was actually symbolic of total vanquish of one's enemy. But it also served other purposes. Where we get DNA today to prove that so-and-so perhaps was fact in killed in a particular strike, they removed the head and often displayed it. Oh, yeah, well, prove to me that King so-and-so, you know, you, you were successful and you got, here he is. Okay, that's compelling. No argument there. And either the heads or the hands, while both sharing in the conquering symbolism, was also used for the practical reason of quantifying the success of the victory against one's enemies meaning they would take a hand or a literal head count to tabulate battlefield fatalities. It's gruesome to us, but to the culture it was expected. And let me remind us all that while it hasn't happened yet on the historical timeline of where we are in 1 Samuel, when David killed Goliath, what did he do? He decapitated him. Oh, I never looked at it that way. Yep, Goliath's dead. You got any doubt about it? Here he is. So the statue of Dagon is here lying dismembered right on the temple steps, making those temple steps to the Philistines now sacred. Which is why the little addition is added in verse 5. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor all who enter Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Again, back to verse 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 8. We read that the Philistines cried out when they heard the celebration, Woe to us! Who shall deliver us? from the hand of these mighty gods. 
These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Remember a few weeks back that I mentioned that we want to pay attention to repetitious words or, or repetitious themes when we are reading God's word. Well, 4.8 happens to begin one such repetition of what, for lack of a better description, I'll call the hand theme, which moves into chapter 5. Again, 4.8, slightly paraphrased for clarity, who shall deliver us from the hand of Jehovah, the Philistines cry. And then in chapter 5, in verses 6, 7, 9, and 11, and continues into chapter 6, with three more mentions of the hand, here's what chapter 5 contains. Now the hand of the Lord was heavy on the Ashdodites, for His hand is severe upon us and on Dagon our God. The hand of the Lord was against the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. So what are they and what are we supposed to not miss? When the hand of the Lord of all creation is against you, He is against you in a comprehensive way. And the answer to the question of desperation that the Philistines shout in 4.8, Who shall deliver us from the hand of Jehovah is no one other than the hand of Jehovah Himself. For there is none greater. He and He alone is God Almighty. What God's people needed... What the Philistines needed, and in fact, what every civilization known to mankind needed and needs, is the mighty hand of God who is not against you, but whose hand is resolutely for you. The language of 1 Samuel in these hand verses are anthropomorphisms. Anthropo from anthropology, from the study of man. Morphism from morphe, or the shape or the form of. The form or the shape of man. It means taking the shape or the form of a man. And as used here, they are purely metaphorical because God the Father is not a man. He is spirit. But it helps us to understand God in a better way. Now, In less than two centuries down the historical timeline, however, two tiny, real hands are going to emerge from the womb of a virgin. And in the language of the Apostle Paul, this one was literally morphe theu, the form or the shape, morph, or of theu, Uh, the genitive of God, the shape or the form of God, literally, no longer metaphorically, but in the miraculous incarnation of God become man for Emmanuel, God with us, had come. Our God is a hands-on God. And you go back to the origins of this nation, I know, and you know, today, and as the timeline gets further and further away from real honest-to-goodness history, 
Everything that was Christian continues to be diminished, diminished, diminished. And all the people back then who were absolutely bonafide, full-fledged Christians, now all of a sudden, well, you know, <coughs> deists. Okay, there was this generic kind of belief in some sort of God, you know, and they like to pull out isolated quotes from a whole plethora of writings of some of many of the founding fathers when, in fact, there was a real genuine faith there. But the further and further away we get from all of that, God is no longer a hands-on God. He's just, if he's there at all, he is this disembodied spirit who started things going in the universe and he's now been on vacation and will be for eternity, I suppose. God is a hands-on God. And when Jesus came in the incarnation, his hands were seen, his hands could be touched, and they were touched, and his hands touched others. And God the Father used his literal physical hands of God the Son to work healing and to work revival and renewal and to metaphorically now I'm using it, to massage one's heart and to chip away the scales that cover so many people's hearts that keep them from hearing, listening, and coming. And the Word, instead of being an anthropomorphism, absolutely literally became flesh and dwelt among us. John chapter 1. The Old Testament and the New Testament so cohesive together. And I love emphasizing these things, allowing the Scriptures to interpret the Scriptures of seeing that God has had one continuous plan from the beginning. As soon as Eve took that fruit and ate and gave it to Adam and he ate, God already had Emmanuel. Firmly in his mind, and this is where it gets really awkward trying to explain, because somebody who's in eternity does not exist within time, not even their thoughts, their knowledge, or anything else. So anthropomorphically speaking, God the Father already knew and had already prepared Emmanuel when God would be with us physically. And this is the great season that is upon us. Let us love him and walk with him in spirit and in truth. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the ends of the earth that he might strongly support those whose hearts are completely his. Let me have you stand. Father in heaven, <laughs> you are mind-boggling it rattles our eyes to try and put into words some of these truths that you have revealed to us. But even now we see, for the most part, is but a shadow of the good things to come. 
And oh, how we long and look toward that day. Increase thy kingdom come for your glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.